TED Audio Collective. Creativity, rather than being a high order rarefied quality, is actually very primitive. It's actually elemental. It's so elemental that we can actually make machines do it. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Kevin Kelly talks about technology, creativity, and AI. These large language models cannot make art that's not tethered to language. Hello, friends. This is Debbie Millman, the host of Design Matters, with a very special announcement. I'm taking my podcast on tour this September. Now you can experience what it's like to sit in on a live Design Matters interview. I'm also bringing along a special co-host for the ride. I'll be joined by New York Times bestselling author Roxanne Gay, and we will be traveling to four cities to sit down with cultural luminaries Celeste Ng in Boston, Kara Swisher in D.C., Audie Cornish in Philly, and a doubleheader in New York City featuring Jada Bumrad from Radiolab and the Emmy-nominated comedian Roy Wood Jr., Tickets are moving fast, so get yours today. All the details are at onairpresents.com. That's onairpresents.com. I hope to see you there. Kevin Kelly is radically optimistic about the future. What about climate change, you might ask? Well, Kevin Kelly thinks that new technologies can foster a more favorable trajectory. What about artificial intelligence? He says it will usher in a new era of services and products and occupations. In short, Kevin Kelly is betting on humanity and our extraordinary ability to adapt and innovate. Kevin Kelly is also a person who thinks a lot about the future. Almost 30 years ago, he helped co-found and was the executive editor of Wired magazine, where he currently holds the title of Senior Maverick. His many books include the New York Times bestseller, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. His most recent is Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. He's here today to talk about his life, his career, his new book, and why he's so optimistic when so many of us are busy pulling our hair out. Kevin Kelly, welcome to Design Matters. Oh my gosh, it's such a delight to be here. Thank you so much. It's And what a wonderful introduction. I feel like I don't deserve it, but I am so glad to be chatting with you finally. Oh, absolutely. Me too. I've been waiting for this for a long time. Kevin, in your brand new book, Excellent Advice for Living, you state that a balcony or a porch <laughs> needs to be at least six feet deep or it won't be used. How did you figure this out? I was told this by Christopher Alexander, which is one of his patterns in his pattern language. And once I understood that and learned it, I checked that many times in my own experiences traveling around the world. And it was absolutely true. I felt very confident to say, this is the way. 
Well, I want you to know that several years ago, I decided to build a balcony off of my bedroom in a brownstone that I own. Now, doing that meant that I might be in some way inhibiting some of the sunlight coming in on the floor below. I didn't want to make it so wide that it might inhibit any sunlight from coming in. And so I can tell you, well beyond anecdotally, because my porch, my balcony, is not at least six <laughs> feet deep, we never use, use it. it right? exactly. We never use it. So when I saw that, I thought, <laughs> oh, my God, I wish I had known that earlier. Yeah. Because I actually think that the way that the sun comes in, the angle that it comes in through the windows, it would not have been in any right, way right. impeded by a slightly longer right. patio or balcony. So there you have it. Design matters. <laughs> yes. uh, if only I could take my own advice. Um, Kevin, you were born in Pennsylvania in 1952. And I read that it just so happens that this was the first year that the word technology appeared mm. in the president's State of the Union address. Yeah. When did you realize that? I was doing research. I didn't, I didn't realize it growing up. I actually didn't really have much of an interest in technology growing up. But when I was researching a book called What Technology Wants, I was really curious about where the concept of technology even kind of arrived. Because the ancients didn't talk about it. And it was like, when do we sort of become aware of it? And it was actually a fairly recent word that was rediscovered, so to speak, in the 1800s, but never really entered into the vernacular until until my lifetime, basically. And that's when people started to talk about it or understand its significance. Of course, now it's the main event in many ways. But that's been a journey where when I was growing up, people talked about the future and it was kind of glorious, but they didn't even talk about technology. They talked about flying cars. They talked about laser guns, but they didn't have this idea that it was a class of something, that it was a category like technology. That's that's actually pretty recent. Well, I really wanted to understand the context in which the word was used in the State of the Union Address. What was that about? So I went back and I looked. It was President Truman. He actually says the word technical, but he says it several times. And in speaking about our potential, he states, our technical missionaries are out there. We need more of them. We need more funds to speed their efforts because there is nothing of greater importance in all our foreign policy. There is nothing that shows more clearly what we stand for and what we want to mm -hmm. achieve. And then he goes on to say, our task will not be easy, but if we go at it with a will, we can look forward to steady progress. On our side are all the great resources of freedom, the ideals of religion and democracy, the aspiration of people for a better life, and the industrial and technical power of a free civilization. Wow, there you go. I could not have said that better. Uh, I think he summarizes my own sentiments about the future and progress. It's interesting that he mentions progress because that's not a word that you hear very often these days. And it's amazing to me that 
we still need to make a case for progress? That, that, that you have to kind of convince people that progress is real? In, in 2023, like, is that, is that really something that we need to do? Because for me, part of my own journey is understanding the reality of progress, that progress is real. And that came partly from my uh, a lot of time in the developing world in places like Asia as it was coming of age and seeing firsthand that, oh my gosh, progress is definitely real. Now, you mentioned as you were growing up, you really didn't have much of an interest in technology. Your father worked in systems analysis for Time Magazine, and I read that in 1965, he took you to a computer show, but you said that you were totally bored by what you saw and considered it pollution. (laughs) It was, yeah. It was, there were cabinets, and there there was no screens, right? There were just cabinets like refrigerators with tapes that were moving. And the output, the total output, was a typewriter typing lines on sheets of paper. And that was it. It was like I'd read science fiction, and I knew what computers were, and these were not computers. <laughs> so so it was like, no, I'm not. I have no affinity for these things and no interest in them. And they were also very huge. I mean, they were like room size and, and bigger and not very smart in that way. And they were really, literally hardly any smarter than your calculator. And it's like, no, I think there's more interesting things in the world than computers. You've written about how when you were in high school, you don't recall having a lot of ideas and stated that there were a lot of other kids in your school yeah. that you were very impressed with because mm-hmm. they seemed to know what they thought. They were very glib and articulate. How would you describe yourself at that time? Well, I have a bit of advice in my book that um, being enthusiastic is worth 25 IQ points. And I'm describing myself because I was a kid that sat in the first row and asked questions the entire time, and was very enthusiastic about learning and material. However, the moment I left the classroom, that was done. That was over. I, I, I hardly did any homework. I did the minimal amount of homework. I was like, no, I'm present in class, and that's what you get. And then the rest of the time is my time. So I was enthusiastic and interested and curious. And that kind of curiosity is also worth a lot in terms of today's world. And that became my job is kind of professionally curious. I actually think that's one of the most important attributes to have in life, just to be curious and open-minded. Right. I have another bit of advice, which is, if at all possible, you want to be curious about things that you're not interested in. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I spent many decades actually, and it's it's embarrassing to say, to say this, especially to you, but I think it's important for people to hear that most of the time up until, so I'm 62 now, I would say up until I was about 40, if I didn't know of something, I assumed it wasn't important. <laughs> How arrogant, right? How ridiculously arrogant. Yeah. And if I hadn't heard of it, I just assumed it wasn't important <laughs> yeah. enough for me to have known. Oh, so so I'm the other way around now. If I haven't heard of it, I'm incredibly curious about it. It's like, how, how, how have I not heard about that? And I have found 
the, one of the best remedies for this kind of curious of things you're not interested in is YouTube. So I'll get some, I'll see some weird thing recommended to me that I have no idea. It's like, well, if they're recommending it, there must be some kind of a following. There must be mm -hmm. some momentum there. Let me see what it is. And there'll be entire worlds, but, you know, connected to it. And it's like, oh my gosh. And now I'm interested in this. I had no idea. And now I have an idea. And, <laughs> and that's very, very powerful. It's really amazing how much you can learn from YouTube. Yeah. It is astonishing. Whenever my wife needs to fix something in the house, rather than call someone now, she goes to YouTube, she oh, gets yeah. the directions and does it herself because there are directions to do everything. Everything. On everything. Everything. The combination of YouTube plus Amazon is the solution yeah. to life, right? I mean, it's like you get on YouTube, they'll say you'll need this weird little kind of bolt to do something. Okay, well, here's the Amazon. And you'll order it there tomorrow and you fix it. And it's like magic. So after after high school, you were trying to decide whether to go to art school or to MIT, and you ended up going to the University of Rhode Island, but dropped out after one year. And you've said that your one big regret in life is that you even went for one year. That's <laughs> true. It's true. Was it that bad? It was. First of all, I shouldn't have gone to the University of Rhode Island, but here's the thing is, again, you know, this is 1969, 1970. I applied to colleges having never set foot on any college whatsoever. I was just looking at a book, taking things. I'd never visited a college even for any reason. I knew nothing about the ones I was really applying to. University of Rhode Island was a little tiny state school where most of the students were commuting and I was not a state and it was grade 13. It was literally like high school, but grade 13. And it was like, I just need to do something. I can't sit in a classroom anymore. I need to make something. I need to do something. Had there been a gap year? Had there been internships? I'd probably have finished, but I needed to do something. And so I dropped out and I did stuff. And that was the only option I had at that time. You became first became the resident photographer at a photography workshop in Millerton, New York. And what inspired you to pursue photography and to work as a photographer? I was really... I, I had two parts of my brain. I was a complete science geek, and I love science. And I took every single science and math class that our college prep um, high school offered. So I doubled up in physics, biology, f physical sciences, geology, and all the mathematics, calculus, algebra, geometry, and all that kind of stuff. But I also took every single art course. And I loved art and drawing and painting and making art. And I discovered photography basically like in my junior year of high school. And photography was this combination of both of those. And because at that time, the only way you could do photography was to do the chemical processing yourself. You had to know chemistry to some extent. You had to know optics. It was a very technical art, but it was also art at the same time. So photography for me was this nice melding, this nice convergence of my interest in science and uh, art. And this was at a time when having a camera, owning a camera was very unusual. 
I saved some money to buy a used camera. I learned how to do photography by going to the library and getting books. It was just at the beginning when photography was kind of coming of age and the single lens reflex was kind of starting to happen. And so I got involved in this thing and I wanted to learn more. And I read about this uh, place in Millerton, New York, where you were residents. And, and I went there and I did photography all day, every day. And I learned a huge amount. And that was my university. You then spent seven years as an independent photographer right. in the remotest parts of Asia. You lived on $2,500 a year. Mm -hmm. You traveled with a Nikkor Mat camera and a bag filled with Kodachrome film through Japan, Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines, Burma, Thailand, Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran. And I read that before you left, you called the National Geographic magazine photo editor, whose number you found in a phone book, and asked if they needed any photographs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what did he say? <laughs> so his name was, I remember his name, Bruce McElfrish. And I was, you know, maybe 20 years old. And I called him up and I said, I'm going to, this was my first trip, I'm going to Taiwan and Japan. Do you need any photographs? And he says, well, that's not how it works here. <laughs> but when you return, show me your work. That was amazing. That was amazing. So I did that. I went down, took a train. When I returned, I lived. Uh, my parents lived in New Jersey. I went to show my work, and he was kind of, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, you know, keep going. Show me more work next time. And I did. And uh, on the second time, they were kind of, they, being National Geographic, was kind of interested in some of the pictures I had taken in the Himalayas. And they... Um, we're considering them for one of the stories. They, in the end, didn't use it. But what I understood, and it was true, was had I kept going back, had I kept doing it, had to do it a third time, I would eventually had gotten some assignment. But along the way, I changed my mind about wanting to be a professional photographer because I, by that time, had started to meet some of them. And I decided that I didn't want that job. I, I wanted to do that as a passion on my own terms and what I wanted to photograph. And I didn't actually really want to photograph what other people wanted to be photographed. During that first trip, you shot over 36,000 slides. And right. You were taking about two rolls of film, which is 70 pictures a day. Right, 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 right. And you've said that when you tell people that, they're absolutely gobsmacked, astounded, and incredulous because... They didn't understand how you could take 70 pictures a day. And this was at a time in our culture before everybody had a camera. Yeah. And you've written about how in order to take a photo, and this I, of course, remember as well, you had to pre-visualize what a photograph was going to look like before you shot it. And back then, did you have any sense of how much the discipline of photography was going to evolve? No, I did not. So not only did I was shooting two rolls a day, which again was considered insane uh, at the time. My my family we had a brownie camera, and my parents would do one twenty four exposure roll a year. 
So you develop at the end of the year, and there'd be some pictures from the 4th of July and Halloween and a birthday party, and that was for the year. And the idea of, of two rolls a day was considered some degree of madness. And well, it was expensive. It was expensive. That's really the whole point. It was, it was equivalent of like $5 today for each time you hit the shutter. And with, uh, as a kid with no money, that was a lot of money. And so you had to pre-visualize because there was also no screen. So you don't even know if you're capturing, and all the other adjustments, like the exposures, shutter speeds, are all set by hand, by manual. So you have to kind of like get it exactly right and get it focused, and no, don't, you don't know if you've got it right until a year later when I was developing the film. And so that kind of pre-visualization, which is also a term that Intel Adams used about pre-imagining the image to the point where you can kind of see what the what it would look like on a paper. You kind of imagined the whole scene and all its complexity onto the paper. That was something that I became good at. It was something that I think is lost often now with with the screens, um, but I had no idea that digital photography would come along. It, th th that would have seemed completely science fiction. And again, I wasn't really thinking about the future that much when I was 22. How has the evolution of photographic technology changed the way you take photos? That's a great question. And I've, I've been asking that at a higher level, not just me, but how does it change how everybody takes photos? And this is in kind of in, in the perspective of the AI coming in. One of the things I've noticed is that because photography has become ubiquitous and cheap, that we take more trivial things. We take more of the things that are ephemeral and passing and not as monumental. They don't don't have to be heroic. They're kind of a little bit more like the Lee Freelander thing of serendipitous. They're much more whimsical, general, the photography that, that you people post, say. So so there's there's a little bit more of a what's the word? They're, they're they're easier. They're they're more relaxed. That's the word I want. It's 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 the more relaxed photography now than before in general, and people are willing to be riskier. Frankly, there's a far more risk taking and trying things in photography now that doing so doesn't cost anything. You've said that we can't influence the direction of technologies, but we can influence the character. Yeah. How do you think we've done that in the discipline of photography? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 if I had seen where we were going, you know, 50 years ago, saying, well, photography is going to become something that everybody carries around some kind of camera with them at all times. Each exposure would be free. The question would be like, well, who owns the pictures? And you could imagine several different versions of this. You could imagine in, under a different political system where we had a different attitude about copyright. And the recent um, Supreme Court decision with uh, Andy Warhol and the photographer. Lynn Goldsmith, yeah. Right. So we could have had a different system where there was much more lax copyright ideas and people could reuse or work upon other people's photograph without having to ask permission. And 
that would have made a different character to photography, where it was much more like you take it, it's immediately in the commons and anybody can work with it. And you can imagine other versions that are even harsher, where maybe to even view a photograph, you needed permission. Okay? And so mm-hmm. you limited who could see your work. That would also have changed photography. That's a case of changing the character of the system in which that technology operates. As an aside, I worked in the Empire State Building for 12 years. And at one point, the artist and designer, Stefan Sagmeister, came to photograph something on the Empire State Building. And the Empire State Building forbid him to do that because the Empire State Building is copyrighted. Right, exactly. And so you can't take a photo of the Empire State Building and use it for any commercial purpose. Right. Um, But you mentioned, you just said something that I discovered in, in researching your work that really, really intrigued me, and it was the idea of technological inevitability. Mm. And in reading your books and many articles, I came across this about the way in which technology has evolved. And you state, when looking at the order of technologies on different continents in prehistory, when there wasn't really much influence between the continents, they actually follow roughly the same sequence. You'll have the domestication of dogs before pottery. You'll have the mention of sewing after pottery. There is a natural sequence which suggests that there is a certain inevitability to technologies. Once you have the previous ones, the next ones are going to happen. And I would say once you invent electricity and copper wires and switches, you're going to invent the telephone. And once you have the telephone, you're going to invent the internet. So the internet was inevitable. The internet was inevitable, but the character of the internet was not inevitable. This goes back to our former conversations. We still have a choice about who owns the internet, who runs it. Is it national, international? Is it run by one country or not? Is it open or closed? Those are all things that we have a choice about, and they make a huge difference. But the fact that the internet arrived, it's going to arrive on probably any planet where they discover electricity and wiring. They're going to have an internet. But the character of the internet is going to be different than ours because of those social dimensions that we get to choose about. And, you know, I fast forward this into saying AI, AI is coming. Making minds is something that evolution wanted to do many, many times. It reinvented minds in many different lines of development that were all separate from each other. So minds and artificial minds are inevitable, but the character of those, the the quality that we really choose about how it's run, who has access to it, how much does it cost, is it open or closed? These are all things that we do have decisions and choices about, and they make a big difference to us. Would you say then, in addition to the internet being inevitable, it is a mutation of technology? So I wrote a book called What Technology Wants, and the short answer about what it wants is that it wants the same things that evolution wants. Meaning, I use the word want not consciously, but like the way that a plant wants light. It leans to the white. So these are... What technology seeks. These are these are <laughs> urges, tendencies. So the tendency of technologies are the same tendencies we see in evolution, 
because it is in fact an extension of evolution. It's, it's evolution accelerated. And so when we look at it that way, where it's going is towards increasing possibilities, increasing forms. So I say that the evolution of technology follows the same thing, the evolution of life, and it's kind of aimed in the same directions and which are towards greater complexity, greater specialization, greater mutualism. And so technology will become more complex and technology also becomes more specialized. And so my prediction would be that in AI, we're going to see increasing numbers of specialized AIs to do different things, whether it's images or language or music or equations or math proofs, that they'll be increasing specialized versions of them, just like we have specialized cameras, and that there will be more mutualism, meaning that a lot of technology comes to depend on other technologies or may only be used by other technologies, meaning that there'll be things that we'll invent that we won't even, the humans won't even use. They'll just, like, they'll be invented for other technologies to use. That's kind of mutualism where they are embedded in the system itself. And so my view is, is that those are the inevitable things. And, and, and they're not at the species level. So I would say in evolution, any planet in the galaxy that had a gravity like Earth's and an atmosphere like Earth, that, that evolution will have quadrupeds. That's an, that's an inevitable because that's just a physically elegant solution. Four legs, very, very stable. But a zebra is not inevitable. That species is completely stochastic. It's completely random. So species are never predictable or inevitable, but the larger blueprint is. So the internet is, but a website is not inevitable. Telephones were inevitable, but the iPhone in particular is not necessarily inevitable. And so we can say certain AIs are going to be inevitable, but ChatGBT4 is not necessarily inevitable. I had my own little epiphany as I was thinking about this inevitability and the, the, the way in which the order of technologies on different continents right, right. in prehistory all were sort of on the same timetable. And in many ways, while this might seem trivial, I've spent most of my career in branding. And I believe that the discipline of branding was also inevitable in that you have the same kind of trajectory. If you think about brands beyond consumerism, um, first you get religious symbols right. in different continents all around the same time. So you have the symbols in the Middle East, you have the symbols mm -hmm. in Brazil, you have symbols or in, in South America, you have symbols that popped up all around the same time, about 10,000 years ago, all of a sudden humans started to create a symbol to signify their relationship with this higher power. Yes. Higher power had nothing to do with it. Right. We created those. Um, and then over time, again, we had no way of knowing what was happening on these different planet and different uh, continents. We get flags, family crests, right. brand marks of ownership on animals. Uh -huh. And then before you know it, Coca-Cola is in every country <laughs> in the world. Right. <laughs> but I've always wondered what triggered those first religious symbols in so many places at the same time with no one else knowing about it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great question. It's a great image, too of the first person to make a symbol on 
Brock and to say, not just me, but all, all of us here, that this represents us or what we believe, that's an incredible step. Right? Yes, it's an incredible step. to It's kind of an abstraction, which is really very, very powerful. But yeah, that would be interesting if maybe some of the earliest cave drawings were actually branding exercises. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I kind of think they were. I, I would contend that they are because we were creating an organized system of being able to perceive reality yeah, yeah. that was a shared a shared reality. So maybe the the, the wonderful Ucker uh, handprints, or maybe those are the the brand of you, the brand of me, the brand of humans. Yes. Um, so the notion that most inventions and innovations are co-invented in multiple times simultaneously and independently is one of the properties of something that you call the technium. Mm. And I was wondering if you could define technium for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. So we talked earlier at the very beginning about technologies, plural, that there's um, that we have a microphone and we've got a camera and we've got cars and uh, even materials, you know, Teflon, Kevlar, these we understand these to be technologies, although it's broader because in fact, technologies would include things like a calendar and timekeeping. These are, these are technologies too. But we, we, we think of these as independent little things and, and, and kind of like in our own lives, our life is a witness to a parade of new technologies as they're invented. But in fact, the reality is much more complicated because these new things that are being invented rely on other technologies to make them or even to input them, like, like they're eating them, they're consuming them. And so we have really something that's much more like um, a rainforest of different technologies that are interdependent, codependent on each other. You can't do farming today without computers and satellites and telephones and logistics. And you can't do those logistics unless you have food for the workers. And so there is a complete ecosystem of these technologies that are codependent on each other. And the important idea about this ecosystem, which I call the technium, is that the technium itself, the, the forest itself, has certain biases, certain tendencies that the individual components don't have. That the tendencies are not found in the individual components. It's a little bit like a beehive, which I was a beekeeper. And so the bees live only six weeks, but the hive can have a memory of years. So there are, there are attributes of the hive that you can't find in individual bees, no matter how hard you look. That's because systems have behaviors themselves. All systems have certain antics and biases and tendencies. And so I'm saying we have a system of technologies called the technium that's not just like culture, it's not as inert, it's actually active, it's an agent, it's doing things, and it has certain tendencies and urges and um, recurring patterns that are not found in the individual technologies that make up and all the technologies together make up this technium. And so the question that I ask is, what are some of those behaviors of the technium at large? And that's what I get the question, what does technology want? 
You've said that the technium is an extension of the same self-organizing system responsible for the evolution of life on this planet. How so? I would say in my definition of, of things that are created by minds, which is what technology is, that that would, ex- that would include the dams that beaver make, the nests that birds make, the homes that termites make, because they are being created from their neurons. Their neurons are measuring the honeycomb. Their, their brains are assembling the nest. This way of looking at technology is something that behaves in the same way as evolution does. So uh, you could map the genealogy of different inventions and showing how they mutate. There's a little mutation which is picked up and it becomes more common. And that is then the origin of the next one. There's like offspring and children. So it's, it's behaving almost identical to biological evolution with one big caveat, which is that unlike biology, it is very, very, very rare for anything to go extinct in the technium. But otherwise, the behavior of this as it progresses through time is very, very similar to biology. And we see bits of the technium, or in the sense of things being made from the mind, already occurring in the animal kingdom. And so for me, we can view technology as origins is not human-made. Actually, the origins are actually at the Big Bang, at the same origins of the beginning of our universe and life of these self-organizing systems. And so the mathematics of the uh, of the energy component of technology follows the same kind of laws that evolution does. So whenever we, whatever we can measure about evolution, we can apply to the technium and see that it's also very similar. So if you think about birds making nests or beavers creating their dams, you know, there isn't a manual that they get right. when they are creating them. It's very much instinctual. So they have an ability to be instinctively creative. Right. There actually is a little bit more leeway. There is, while a lot of it is imperative, instinctive, but we know from like bird song and stuff, they actually can learn and change. So there's, it's not 100% reflexive. There are elements of individual creativity, even in those acts. And so it makes me wonder, um, and I'm, I'm just sort of formulating this as we speak, so it might not be quite as eloquent as I'd want it to be. But if we as humans have an ability to be creative, and that's something that many people think that all humans are born with, the whole notion of folks like Rick Rubin or Elizabeth Gilbert talking about creativity coming through us, the best creativity coming through us, not by us. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there's some correlation there with this innate instinctiveness mm-hmm. in creating the best possible art or invention. Yeah, I, I, I think there is. And I think one of the things that AI has shown us is that creativity, rather than being a high order rarefied quality is actually very primitive. It's actually elemental. It's so elemental that we can actually make machines do it. 
rather than it being something that's layered on top of consciousness and awareness, it actually precedes all those. And that it's actually so elemental and fundamental that we're capable of programming it into machines until so machines can be creative, certainly with that lowercase creativity of, of doing something novel. Maybe not through the breakthroughs yet, but certainly at the lowercase. And I think animals have shown that they are capable of having a lowercase creativity in certain cases. So that to me says that yes, this is this is this elemental foundational level of creativity is something that's very fundamental to all living systems. And that's what sort of living systems that try to learn and adapt, you could say that that's one variety of creativity. And I think what we're seeing is, is that that is something that's portable. That's something that we can move. And it's not just the province of the humans don't own it. Yeah, I want to I want to talk quite a bit about AI. But I also want for our listeners to be able to understand something that you just mentioned, which is called uppercase creativity or lowercase creativity. So and I'm going to read very specifically something that Kevin has said so that folks understand. Scholars of creativity refer to something called uppercase creativity. Uppercase creativity is the stunning, field-changing, world-altering rearrangement of that major breakthrough brings. Think special relativity, the discovery of DNA, Picasso's Guernica. Uppercase creativity goes beyond the merely new. It is special and it is rare. It touches us humans in a profound way, far beyond what an alien AI can fathom. And we'll come back to the AI mm -hmm. conversation momentarily because there's a bunch of other things that I want to talk to you before that. So we were talking a little bit about, you mentioned the Big Bang. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a door I can't help but go through. <laughs> <laughs> so you've written that at the core of the origin of life and its ongoing billion-year metabolism is its ability to replicate and copy information accurately. And life copies itself to live, copies to grow, copies to evolve. Life wants to copy. So my question, especially given your earlier experiences in Jerusalem, uh -huh. <laughs> you know where I'm going. Yeah. Um, do you believe in God? Mm -hmm. And if so, how does that connect mm. to the notion of evolution on this planet? Sure, sure. So I, I, I do believe in God. And if listeners want to bear with some of my personal theology, it goes like this. It seems to me there's sort of only two major possibilities when we think about where did all this, the universe and everything in it, which is quite big as we look out into the telescopes with Webb and beyond, um, where did it come from? And so the, the general two answers are, well, it has always been. It somehow self-created itself. The universe has always been. Or the second one, it was that it, began by itself in some weird way. Why? Who knows? And then there's the other story, which is, well, God made it. And then you say, well, where did God come from? And well, it's always been, or it's self-made. <laughs> and all I can say is none of those are satisfactory. But I find the God version to be a lot more interesting and entertaining. So I prefer the God explanation. And my explanation of God is that 
God was a self-created being, the only self-created thing. And in order to understand itself, it manifests itself as the universe in order to understand what it is. And evolution is the way in which this unfolds. It's God discovering itself by making things with free will like itself. And we are made in the image in the sense that we are now in the process of discovering who we are and we're going to make other things like robots in order to understand what we are. We'll give these other beings some degree of free will just as we have free will to understand ourselves. And so this is kind of replicating process. And so for me, the the godhood is a kind of all-encompassing being that's served perfect but becoming more perfect, which again, logically doesn't make any sense. What does that even mean? Where if you are infinite and becoming more infinite? But it's, the idea is that it's not static. It is a process that itself is becoming more godlike by having a universe, by understanding itself. It's a way of looking at itself. So that's my short version of the theology. I don't expect anybody else to believe it, but that's my view. You're a Christian. Yeah. You had a religious epiphany in Jerusalem in the 1970s. Can you just share a bit of a high-altitude explanation of what happened? I don't know if I can explain it. Yeah, that's a good point. uh, (laughs) I can tell you um, the the short, there's a couple versions of it. And by the way, the first time I told the story about it uh, was on This American Life. And um, I don't think I've been able to tell it as well since. Um, The short version is is that I um, was working in Iran during the Khomeini Revolution, got kicked out, went to Jerusalem to photograph Easter and had a conversion experience in Easter where I really believed that Jesus was the cosmic Jesus. Cosmic Jesus, again, taking that view of the Godhood and understanding that when you have a free will, when we, well, we're going to discover this ourselves when we make robots that have free wills, is that when a robot that you made decides to do harm, the question is, what's the, what are the consequences? Should the robot absorb it? Does the maker of the robot have any degree of capability and, and how do we satisfy the need for justice while still also be loving? And for me, the answer is that the Godhood, the Creator, takes on the the penalty itself. It absorbs the penalty in part in order to relieve the being with free will from eternal guilt and, and the burden of having to suffer the consequences of doing harm. And so for me, that's the cosmic Jesus. And so I, that everybody is forgiven. Right. And so that set me off on a course of an assignment that I believe I got, which was to try and live as if I was going to die in six months. And 
that set me off on a different course where I kind of graduated from photographing and, and traveling, and I was um, trying to prepare for this short time of no regrets and trying to, to deal with things to, to, to be ready. And, and I, what I didn't understand at the time, but did later on, was this was providing me with a rebirth experience where I actually went through the whole thing and then didn't die, but was reborn in a very, very visceral, tangible way that I could not have believed. And so um, what was interesting about having six months to live was that I could only do that by denying a future. So every day I was giving up the future. I was not thinking about, I wasn't taking photographs because what's the point? You're not going to be there in six months. And that restricting of the future was another lesson because when I came out of it on the other side, I realized that having a future was one of the most human things, that it was really necessary for our own humanity was to have some something in the front of us. And that if you take that away, you take away a lot of humanity. Yeah, I mean, that's really the only thing that differentiates us from other species is our ability to imagine right. a scenario or a future. So I became much more interested in thinking about the future after that. It's interesting because you had this sense that you were going to die. And it does seem like that six months was a, a death of sorts in that you were rebirthed in a new way. Right, right. Think, thinking about time in an entirely new way. Did you have a sense that this was more a metaphysical death or did you believe that it was going to be a physical death and that you might get hit by a car or be involved in some right. tragic accident and no longer exist? I, I was taking it very literally that, that I was preparing yeah. for the complete death where I would go to sleep that night and not wake up. That was the assignment to me was to prepare in every way as if this was a complete physical reality. So I, I, I was acting as much as I could to be responsible and taking that seriously in every respect. So when I went to bed that night, I was prepared to physically die. Initially, you thought that with six months to live, you would climb Mount Everest or go <laughs> scuba diving or get in a speedboat and see right. how fast you could go. That would be the natural inclination. You live life to the fullest. But in fact, I surprised myself because I wanted to see my parents and my brothers and sisters and do ordinary things. Yeah, I, I, that was a surprise to me. You found the ordinary quite exotic when you went back. Yes, and that's, I think, part of the marvel of, of life is finding the extraordinary in the ordinary and finding the ordinary in the extraordinary. And I think that was a gift. You wrote about what you did when you were back home with your parents. You said that you helped around the house, you uh -huh. dug up shrubs, you worked on a deck, you moved furniture, you washed dishes. Right. <laughs> were, you, were you bored doing those things or were you feeling very fulfilled by doing those things? I was a little bored. Because after three months, I got on a bicycle and rode across the U.S. to visit my brothers right. and sisters. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, 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 I get bored pretty easily. You returned home again on October 31st from a 5,000-mile right. trek on your bicycle to visit your siblings. 
Nobody knew this entire time that you were in a race against the clock, so to speak, and that you were expecting to die on November 1st, but Mm -hmm. you didn't die. Did that surprise you when you woke up on November 1st? Did you think, like, Groundhog Day? No, no, I I was saying that was, I I literally felt like I was being born. When I was opening up my eyes, the experience from the visceral, from my whole body was like a, a, a gift, like being born. Because as I was opening my eyes and coming to, I realized that I had a future again, that I had everything. And so it was, yes, a surprise in that sense. It was, I mean, surprise is not the exact word. It was a a gratitude. It was an appreciation. It was like, what if you were conscious and you were born, what would that feeling be? What how would you describe that? If you were if you were instead of being born as a baby, you were born as an adult, there would be an exhilaration that you would feel. And that's what I felt. You had your religious epiphany when you were twenty-seven. Mm. And you thought you only had six months to live. Mm-hmm. After you realized that you were not going to die, you created a countdown clock on your computer to count down the days you had left after figuring out your anticipated life expectancy based on some Medicaid actuary charts. Right. That told you that your new projected age of dying was going to be 78.68 years old. Uh-huh. I believe you're now 70? 71. 71. According to the date duration calendar, you figured out the estimated last day of your life was now going to be January 1st, 2031. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that day now? Well, so the thing about it is, the good news is that my longevity has been increasing. So now when I look at the, the tables, I get a it's like 80, 81 or something. So, so, and, and there's also something about it. The longer you live, the higher your chances of living longer. And then there's medical advances. And so in some senses, in the last couple of years, I haven't been losing any dates. I've actually been able to maintain the same 5,080 days. And so that's been a bonus, some gravy. But I, I, I think I, I run it just to sharpen my commitment and my focus during during the day because each day is if i have 5080 days to do everything on my list then is doing what i am right now is it what i want to do and the answer is in this case yes absolutely but it helps me focus in that way i went and did the same thing after reading okay. about you doing this I have about 10,000 days left. There you go. I am projected to live until 91. Okay. Which means only two-thirds of my life is over. I have another big chunk, (laughs) a big third. What's interesting is that my grandmother lived till 91, and her sister lived till 91. My mother is currently 81, still going. Yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of feeling good about that. And so the 10,000 days is something now I'm thinking about. Well, see, you know, you may say 10,000 days a lot, but to me, (laughs) for all the things I want to do, even 10,000 days doesn't seem like enough. No, it doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't. It doesn't. Are you afraid of dying? No, because I've already rehearsed it. 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not looking forward to it at all. I don't want it, but I'm not afraid of it. Are you afraid of anything? I'm afraid of being wrong about so many things. There are lots of things that I believe that I'm sure will be totally wrong. It's a different kind of fear. But in terms of actual things that exist today that I am afraid of, no. I mean, from what I understand, you haven't been wrong about that much. I mean, I think the one article... No, no, no. The one article (laughs) that I think you were really embarrassed about was something called the Roaring Zeros or something like that. No, there's there's plenty of things I'm sure, uh, beliefs that I have that I'm sure I'm, I'm wrong about that people in the future... We'll look back and be embarrassed. My descendants mm. will be embarrassed by what I believe. <laughs> well, fortunately, I think there's going to be enough other good stuff to sort of <laughs> to sort of cover that stuff up. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your use of technology. In 2010, yeah. when you wrote What Technology Wants, you stated that you didn't have a smartphone, yeah, yeah, Bluetooth, yeah. Twitter. Your kids grew up without TV, yeah. as you mm-hmm. did. You had no cable. At the time, you said you didn't have a laptop or travel with a mm-hmm. computer. Now, I know now that most of the above you now right, have. Right, 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 right. When did you decide to dive into social mm. media, and what has your experience been of it? Right, so... I have social media, but not on my phone. Right. I have it on my desktop. And that works for me in terms of hearing what my the people I follow are thinking about. So for me, it's very, very useful. I have a, a laptop, which I use when I travel, but I um, it's primarily, again, just to do email. I'm an old email, old school person. So I, I don't know. I find it pretty easy to manage or to unplug things I, I you know i know people not everybody feels that same way but for me that hasn't been a problem we didn't have tv in our household not because of the content because we were actually the one of the first families with the got the isdn and then mm-hmm. later on we were the first like with netflix discs my main objection to it was the commercials Mm-hmm. Our kids grew up without the commercials, and that was the main. And, and the second thing was also seeing things on our demand rather than having to watch when things were being shown. So it was this idea of content on demand without advertisements, which is streaming <laughs> these days, right? right? So it was the inevitable. Yep. Right, exactly. That's what we wanted. Because I do remember a, a great moment when our daughter, my oldest daughter, was maybe eight or something, no, six or eight. She came to me and she said, because we had borrowed a VHS tape, a Disney tape. And she came to me and said, Daddy, Daddy, there's a program in my program. And I said, Wow, well, let me go see. And it was an advertisement, <laughs> it was interrupted her program. And she had no idea what it was. And we had a teaching moment about what the what the commercials were really about. So that was the objection. And these days, we were talking about YouTube. One of the best bargains in the world is YouTube Premium. If you don't have it, it's like crazy because there's no commercials, there's no ads on YouTube. It's 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 worth whatever I'm paying not to see ads and. I, until recently, I went off of Google, which I was a very early, one of the first Google users, went off of Googles because they didn't offer 
a version of Google where you paid to not see ads, those sponsored links. So I went to a, um, a version of a, a search engine. It was with Neva, and I'm now going to you.com, where you can pay and you don't see the sponsored ads. So I am totally in favor of controlling what you see by supporting the site in other ways than giving my attention. I'd rather give the money than give my attention. You've stated that the complexity of social media is akin to biology right. and that it's not a coincidence that we speak of things going viral. Right. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on, on why you feel that way. I wrote a whole book, my first book called Out of Control, which was about decentralized systems and the parallels between the world of the born and the world of the made and how when things are complex and complicated enough, we can import the behavior of biological systems into these mechanics to, to manage them, to make them work, to evolve them and adapt them, to make them more alive and organic. And we're seeing that. And one of the ideas is that, you know, very large systems like the internet can have an immune system, whereas you cannot ever completely eradicate spam but you can keep it down to a minimum, just like you have infections or you have cells in your own body. You don't ever actually eliminate them. You just keep it down to a manageable level. The general principle is that these systems, when we take some of these biological principles into these complicated systems, we can make them more like a living system, which makes them better for us. I'd like to read a quote of yours that I found in my research about the state of social media. Yeah. You state, we cannot use something for hours a day, every day, and have it not affect us. We have hints, but don't really know. As we discover how it works, a wise society would modulate how this technology is used by adults and children. As we begin to understand its tendencies, harms, and benefits, we can devise incentives to continually redesign the tech to enhance democracy and well-being. Yeah. All this must be done on the fly, in real time, because what we've learned over the past hundred years is that we can't figure out, we can't predict what technologies will be good for by simply thinking and talking about them. New technologies are so complex, they have to be used on the street in order to reveal their actual character. That is one of the most cogent statements I've encountered about the quagmire of social media, Kevin. And I'm wondering, how can we best manage our relationship with social media? Do you believe that we are addicted and that it's all a dopamine game and... We're all searching for constant gratification through our devices. I think there's an element to it, but I think the whole point of social media is obviously there's more going on than just that. And I also don't believe that everybody that that, that is inherently addictive. I think there are categories. A lot of the studies on social media use right now is based on the U.S. And the U.S. is peculiar in so many ways. Other countries don't necessarily have the same problems that we have with social media. We don't have enough data from their use to, to know whether this is a human thing or just an American thing. And what we do know from like 
the studies in health say, is that you don't want to base policy on just one or two health studies of a thing. We just don't know enough. It's so complicated. We need hundreds of studies before we can say definitely this or that in making a policy level. And right now, we just don't have enough studies about social media to understand where the harm is coming from exactly. And the third thing I would say about it is whenever we're evaluating new technologies, we always have to say, compare to what? Mm. Compare to the existing technology. So yes, dental fillings may cause some harm, but compared to what? Compared to cavities, there are way in improvement. The same thing with like say, um, influencing elections. I think there's an overestimation of the role of the social media. You want to say, compared to what? Compared to cable TV? Compared to Fox News? Yeah, it's interesting to think about the self-driving cars and the outrage that people right. had about one car accident. Right, Compa- compared to what? there are, you know, a million car accidents a year, right? Right. Something like that? Right. So the idea would be, are we going to prohibit human drivers until they're 99, 99% safe? No, <laughs> we're giving a pass to human drivers that we don't expect, uh, or the pass that we're not giving to the new technologies. The drivers, self-driving cars, how safe are they compared to what? Compared to the old, compared to what we have right now. And so the same thing with whatever other issues in social media, like bullying, okay, compared to what? Compared to what happens in the middle school hallway? Mm-hmm. And Between so, your high school gym in my case? <laughs> exactly. Compared to what? So we tend to evaluate new technologies at a higher double standard than we do with the existing technology. And part of what my idea of proactionary stance to technology is that we want to constantly evaluate the old technology too. Like the FDA gives a pass for approval of a drug, but it should be reevaluating it all the time in the context of new evidence and the way it's being actually used. And so we want constant evaluation. And I think we should make policy based on evidence, evidence-based policy. A lot of the policy in AI is now being made on imaginary harms. People are imagining what could go wrong. They're imagining the harms and they're gonna make policy based on those imaginations. And that's very, very dangerous. And harmful to the to the technology. Speaking of new technologies, on May 4th, 2022, mm. you veered from the type of daily art you were posting on your Instagram page. Right. Rather than making daily art on your own, you use you began to use AI to help make a new type of images. Right. Um, what has that experience been like for you? Well, part of what I was doing for the year of posting a piece of art that I made every day was I would sit down and literally have no idea what I was going to make. And I had one goal, which was to surprise myself. I wanted to make something. I was like, where did that come from? I had no, I didn't know that. I didn't have that in my mind. It came out of the act of drawing or painting. And that was really fun. And so then when the AI came along, it was kind of easy to do that part of being surprised. But it turned out to be really, really hard to get it to obey you. The AIs are easy to surprise and hard to follow your orders. 
And so what I've been trying to do is get them to go in certain directions and have things I can imagine. The surprise part is easy, but getting them to do something great is really, really difficult. They call this new art or job of prompting. You're constantly nudging them and you're kind of like trying to figure out what they want to hear and you're kind of guessing. It's like working with a donkey. It's really hard to get them to go in certain directions. And here's what the epiphany that I had recently. So I've been making for a year. I've done this. I'm using Midjourney and Dolly and Stable Diffusion. And recently, Photoshop has it built in, which I think they're going to open AI. But anyway, there's a fourth one, Photoshop. And what, what I realized is that there were images, art, that I could kind of imagine, but I didn't have any words for. And a lot of great art you can't put into words. And that means that even though theoretically the AIs could make any possible image, they cannot. These large language models cannot make art that's not tethered to language. It's bound to things that you can describe. So there's this whole world of art that I have in my mind that I don't have words for. Therefore, the AI can't make it. I can draw because I'm able to transcend language in my mind, but they can't. And so that was an epiphany what, that, that the current crop of AIs are incapable of making images that transcend language, which is some of the best art in the world. I recently heard about the job title Prompt Engineer. Right and investigated what what that was like. It still seems that all of the AI, AIs, as you put it, Mm because there's going to be more than one, um, or is more than one, aren't really self-directed. And that's sort of what John Maida once said about the computer, you know, sort of the inherent flaw of the computer was that it could do nothing on its own. It had to be directed by by us to to do it. I think that is, I think that's true currently. We might see abilities to to make it self-directed, and the question is, well, how long will it go before it putters out or stops itself? But you're right. Right now, that is absolutely true. There is no self-directed, and um, what amounts there are is very limited. And that's one of the things that, that I've also observed is that they have very short attention spans. But you're having a lot of fun with it. I'm a lot of fun, but they have short senses span. So, like one of the first things we want to do, I had a friend, science fiction writer, we want to make a book, illustrate a book, and the problem was is that it could develop a character and then forget about it two seconds later. It's like no, 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 come on, you need to remember this. The new versions of ChatGPT have a little bit more memory, but they're still just not engineered or not capable of sustaining attention over long periods of time to the same thing. So that's another failing of them currently is they have short attention spans. There have been so many headlines about the future of AI in the in the New York Times. Right. The New York Times, I think, published si- over 60 articles on AI alone in the last 30 days, some of them with titles including, How Could AI Destroy Humanity? <laughs> big Tech is Bad, Big AI Will Be Worse, and the Pessimistic... AI poses risk of extinction, industry leaders warn. That was an actual headline in the New York Times. AI poses risk of extinction, industry leaders warn. Right. How 
accurate do you think these headlines are? Yeah, they remind me very much of of headlines. I should go back and read the New York Times when they was talking about the internet, but we'd certainly heard similar. I wouldn't say they're that drastic, but we did hear very dire warnings about the internet. And there was, I remember, mag, Time Magazine cover about if the internet continues, spam will take over the world and destroy the internet. They were saying, well, look how much spam we have right now. If, if everybody has email, then spam will just kill it. Of course, the solution was we had spam filters. And the spam filters even being embedded at the level of Google. So that's what's happening is that Google is basically filtering the spam before it even reaches you. So we developed technologies to deal with that issue. And that's what we're going to do with AI is there are certainly going to be new problems. You know, biases, prejudices, these are real. But we can invent technologies and solutions that will solve them. They will make new problems of their own. So we're not looking forward to a problem-free future. That's utopia, which I don't think is possible or desirable, but what I call protopia, where we are going to have more problems, but the solutions to those problems are more technologies. So I'm optimistic about that protopia, not because I think our problems are smaller than we thought, but because I think our capacity to solve them is even greater. And so that's the missing part, is our ability to keep solving these problems that come up. And if we can never get better at it, then yes, I would agree with the pessimists, it's at the end, we're done. But the thing is that these new technologies also help us to create new solutions at an even faster rate than before. I came of age as a designer in that time between doing old-school, hands-on, drafting table, graphic design, and then morphing and migrating to an Apple computer. And in that time, there were many, many people, older designers than, than I was, that were absolutely vehement that nothing creative could come out of a computer right. that um it was cheating this was it was yeah yeah and then of course when the iPhone came out everybody was talking about how this was going to ruin the uh discipline of photography yep. and this is this is another quote I found from you um we might have expected professional occupations in photography to fall as the smartphone swallowed the world and everybody became a photographer with 95 million uploads to Instagram a day and counting. Yet the number of photography professionals in the U.S. has been slowly rising from 160,000 in, in 2002 before camera phones to 230,000 in 2021. So I think that, you know, you, you talk about the tech panic cycle, and I think we're in one of those right now with a number of different technologies. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we're drawing on AI because that is the most recent one. But there are others that cause panic cycles, including, you know, genetic engineering, embryo selection. These are things that are going to come and we'll be facing those very squarely soon genetic sequencing of newborns and all kinds of things are going to be in front of us. And there are people, here's the problem. The problem is, is that it is very easy to imagine how things don't work. That's entropy. That's the easiest, most probable things. If things fail, things don't work. So seeing the path where things break is easy. Seeing the path 
where things work in a new way for the, for the first time is hard. It's improbable, okay? It requires a lot more energy and effort. And so um, we tend to take the easy path of just uh, quickly imagining all the ways that these things break and are going to harm us. And going the other direction of imagining the ways in which there's unintended benefits rather than harms is harder. And I think there are less people doing it. So what I'm trying to spend my time on is coming up with those possible paths where there's a future ahead of us that I want to live in at least. And I think we benefited in today's generation from people who thought about Star Trek, the, you know, the communicator. What an inspiration that was for people making the iPhones. Like they could see it in their head. There it was. We can make that come true. And I think the fact that it was imagined made it easier to make it come true. And I think it's hard for us to really have a future that's going to be really great unless we imagine it first. I, I think it's hard to kind of get there inadvertently. And what I'm looking for is we don't want to ignore the problems. They need great attention. And I'm glad there's many people focused on the problems, but we just need a few more who are focused on the opportunities and who can articulate what one of those good futures might look like to help us make them achievable. Kevin, before I let you go, I want to talk about your new book. It is a delicious book. It is called Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. And you've said that Excellent Advice for Living is an inadvertent book. Yeah. And that writing a book of advice was never on your bucket list. What made you decide to publish this book? It was born on the internets, and it came from a habit that I had of jotting down great sayings by other people. One, I just loved the form, the format of Proverbs, just that condensation, the little kind of zip file that you have to kind of unpack. And um, at some point, many years ago, I began writing down my own versions of things. And it was just for the, 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 the joy and pleasure of trying to compress something into like a whole book of wisdom into a single sentence. And then at some point I realized that um, as I was getting older that um, there were things I really had wished I'd known earlier. And so I thought, well, I, had, we, I should give these to my, my, my young adult children because well, we weren't very preachy and I never really gave advice in that way. And they would probably benefit from hearing this younger rather than later. So I wrote down 68 of them on my 68th birthday to give to my kids. And I posted them, not expecting very much, just because I'd written them. And they went kind of viral and bounced around to such an extent that I was encouraged to do the same thing a year later. 69 and then 70. At some point, they made it to the New York Times op-ed page. And so I thought, okay, this is, there's something here. I should put them all together in a way that makes it handy to hand someone rather than have to search through the internet to look for them. And so it was kind of a, originally like to help me. I, I, th I think of these as reminders, reminding myself of things in a way that I can repeat to myself that I thought would be handy for my kids to help them repeat and change their behavior. And so some of them are 
kind of just channeling the ancients and others are kind of very practical things that probably won't make sense in 10 years, but could be practical right now. You stated that when you want to change your own behavior, you need to repeat little behavior-modifying mantras as reminders. And I do the same thing. Um, I'd like to share some of my favorites from your book. Um, Some are a little too hard, hit a little too hard, if you know (laughs) what I mean. (laughs) But that's a good thing. Uh, So here are some of my favorites. Um, When you are anxious because of your to-do list, take comfort in your have-done list. Right, right. The paper version of to-do lists are good for that because you can see your have-dones. Yes. That's why I like to check things off. Yeah, exactly. Um, this one is really good. A great way to understand yourself is to seriously reflect on everything you find irritating <laughs> in others. We are a package of contradictions and opposites. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, this is a couple of these are pieces of advice that I am taking into the podcast now in terms of how I think about things. Um, so he, the next two are a worthy goal for a year uh-huh. is to learn enough about a subject so that you can't believe how <laughs> ignorant you were a year earlier. Uh-huh. And this goes all the way back to that thinking when I was 40 that anything yeah, I yeah, didn't yeah, know yeah. about was not important to know. Oh. Well, what, for, for, <laughs> for me, that, that thing has been learning about the elements Oh, really? The periodic table? The periodic table elements. I was shocked by how ignorant I was of the elements, these basic building blocks of the universe and elements that I had no clue even existed. Their names, their profiles. It's like, how could I miss? This is like, this is this is universal. This is like any... Any galaxy, any planet, anywhere in the world, they'll know this, but I don't know them. And so I've been reading more and more about the elements and hearing about the history of their discovery. It's just like, it's like I'm shocked by how ignorant I was. <laughs> good. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? Yeah. Um, rule of three in conversation. To get to the real reason, ask a person to go deeper than what they just said, then again, and then once more. The third time's answer is the one closest to the truth. Yeah. So you'll you'll see you'll be seeing me apply that in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I have uh, three more. This is something I'm working on too. Forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never get. Oh, yeah. And it's a gift to yourself. Yeah. That's why I said before, everyone will be forgiven. Yep. Um, Superheroes and saints never make art. Uh Only imperfect beings can make art because art begins in what is broken. Yeah. Yeah. People think, well, I can't make it because I'm not enlightened. I'm not there. No, 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 no. That's, That's exactly where you want to start. Everyone's time is finite and shrinking. The highest leverage you can get with your money is to buy someone else's time, hire and outsource when you can. That I love that. Took me so long to understand. I was a whole earth do-it-yourselfer, everything that was sort of like the highest quality. But um, when I realized that you know the billionaires with all the money cannot buy more time. And so it is the most precious and scarcity that we have. And getting someone else to give you their time, oh my gosh, it's worth anything. 
Yeah, I think so much about time now. I don't know if you saw the article a couple of days ago. I think it was in Nature.com that scientists are beginning to believe that time immediately after the Big Bang yeah, yeah, saw that. was slower right, than right. time now. And since the universe is expanding at an accelerated yeah. rate, I'm wondering if that correlates with time feeling like it's going faster too. I asked that exact question five days ago to Brian Green. And? So I said, Brian, my understanding is that you know, from the Big Bang, the universe is expanding, space is expanding, and that, you know, compared to now, the universe was very tiny. Does that mean that time is also expanding, that compared to now, a billion years, it went very fast? He said, no. Ah. So the standard theory is that space expands in time. The time is constant. The speed of light is constant, because if it wasn't constant, the speed of light wouldn't be constant. It says the standard theory right now is that, no, Space expands, but time does not. He says there are some other alternative theories about a flexible time, but they're all considered, you know, not proven. Mm. So I was very disappointed because the same I thing, too. The same thing is I was thinking, <laughs> oh, well, a billion years ago, it was only a second now. Yeah. Right. That 10,000 days might just go yeah, on forever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> In in an interview with Tyler Cowen, he gave you a piece of advice, and he said, um, tell me if this is good or bad. Minimize deathbed regret. <laughs> and you felt it was good, and you went on to say that the people that you respect the most in your circle uh, are still asking themselves at 70 years old, what am I going to do when I grow up? Who yeah. am I? What am I here for? Should I be doing this? That's actually why I respect them so much, because they're still constructing their lives rather than, say, discovering it or finding it. They're constructing it. And I yeah. think that's a really wonderful metaphor. And I wanted to share that with our listeners, because so many people that I encounter that listen to the show are always worried about when they're going to be able to sort of find their purpose yeah. or make their mark or do the thing that they were meant to do. And I think that that's a, a wonderful way of thinking about the long game or the long now. Sure. I think that that's a direction, not a destination. Yeah. That awareness of becoming, as I say, the only, and that it's a lifetime duty, it's a lifetime chore, a lifetime assignment that you'll spend all your life to get there. And it's not somewhere you arrive. It's like an asymptote. You keep approaching it. And ideally, on the day before you die, you feel like, okay, I fully become myself. So, yeah. You know, people talk about making it. And I say, why would you want to peak the day until the day before you die? Right. You know, you don't want to be a, you don't want to be a has -been. You don't want to arrive too early. Right. <laughs> um, Kevin, I, want to end the show today by reading a little bit more from your interview with Tyler Cowen about your new book. And this is one of the most beautiful things I've encountered in a while, and I want to read it in its entirety. You state, I think there is one little piece of advice at the very end, which is your goal in life. Your goal in life is to be able to say on the day before you die that you have fully become yourself. I want to emphasize the idea of fully becoming yourself and the difficulty and the challenge to discover what that is, but how powerful it is. 
And that's true whether you're starting a company or becoming an artist or a teacher, whatever it is. And the reason why I'm very pro on technology is that I think it enables us, helps us generally to become more of ourselves. We all have mixtures of talents that need external tools to help us express things. I am interested in increasing that pool of possible tools in the world so that all of us have some chance to really express our genius and fully become ourselves. And Kevin, then you conclude by saying, it's going to take all your life to figure that out. Life is to figure it out. Every part of your life, every day, is actually an attempt to figure this out. Mm-hmm. So thank you for helping me figure it out today. Thank you, Kevin Kelly. Thank you so much for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. It has been an absolute honor. And a real delight. Thank you for inviting me. Kevin Kelly's most recent book is titled Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. You can find out more about Kevin Kelly and all of the extraordinary things he is doing, only some of which we touched on today, on his website, kk.org. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.